0: Welcome to the Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we get to look at Exodus chapter 27 together and we get a couple more pieces of the construction of the Old Testament Tabernacle. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, 5 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be 3 cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen a hundred cubits long for one side, Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. Its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the cord on the west side, there shall be hangings of fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side the hangings shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen twenty cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before Yahweh. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So in our text today, we're adding to the blueprint of the tabernacle. In the last couple of days, we have seen the actual tent that will be the Tent of Meeting, as it's called as well, the Tabernacle, which ends up being 30 cubits long by 10 cubits wide. It's also 10 cubits high. We've also already had the pieces that are made for inside of that, with the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Testimony. You have the the lampstand to give it light. You have the table of presents, where the the bread and the wine are for the priests. Here, we're going to add the altar outside, and establish the courtyard outside, and then we're going to come back for oil within the lamps. So, first the altar comes up, and this altar is going to be a square. It's not quite a cube, um, which is a bit of a relief for the priests in the years to come because uh, to have it an, an extra three feet tall would have been a whole lot of extra work for them. Uh, the altar is seven and a half feet, so five cubits, seven and a half feet long by wide, so it's a square. And it is three cubits tall, so four and a half feet tall, which is sizable enough, right? That's you know 54 inches off the ground. Considering they're going to have to heave... Bulls and rams and sheep goats up onto the top of this thing. That's not going to be an easy task So again thankfulness From the priests that this is at least doable Get it up even higher that would have been even harder The altar is going to have horns on its four corners You're not going to read a whole lot about these horns in the course of Scripture what are they for? Why are they there? If you're looking in the Book of Kings, I forget the exact chapter, you'll find the story of a man who's fleeing, and he grabs a hold of the altar's horns, and it's a safety thing. Almost like when kids today play hide and go, well, no, when they're playing tag, and they set up a safe base that as long as they're on that base, nothing can, no one can tag them, they can't be made it. When you'd committed a crime, as long as you held the horn of the altar, you were safe from those who would who would seek revenge against you. There's not a lot about that in the Old Testament. It shows up twice, if I recall correctly, but it's never actually given to us specifically by God as a practice. The other thing about horns, perhaps, if you're looking into the book of Revelation, when you read horns there, they refer to power. And so... Is there power in this altar? Oh, if there is, it's a different kind of power. It's the power of God to forgive. Which is, again, that's different. That's a unique thing. What you can ask your children for already here is this conversation is beginning. What's this thing for? What's an altar for? What are they going to do with this? This is the place of sacrifice. They are going to bring their animals here when they are commanded to sacrifice whatever it is, or I've named the animals already, they must bring them to this place. They have to bring them to the tabernacle, or in the future, the temple, and sacrifice them on this. Those sacrifices, as you'll see them in the book of Leviticus, really, if you're curious, read the first several chapters. I think it's maybe up through about chapter 7, chapter 8. Would give you a pretty solid picture of all the different sacrifices they were supposed to do but they're actually told that these sacrifices do grant forgiveness that's not something to be overlooked however as the christian church today and a common feature in church church architecture you have the altar at the front of your church but above it stands the cross because the cross is where Christ sacrificed himself a sacrifice that is greater than all the other sacrifices ever could be it's a point Hebrews brings home pretty well in the New Testament A oh, sacrifice once and for all that forgives all sins of all time so that the church church architecture there helps us to see that the Christ sacrifice on the cross is greater it's higher than it's above the sacrifices of the Old Covenant on the altar but that altar is still there to remind us. That cross is still there to remind us of the depth of our sin, but also of what God has done to have mercy on us. And so today from that that altar in your church, typically speaking, you're going to receive Christ's body and his blood in the bread and the wine for you in the Lord's supper. It's gonna be placed on that altar. It's gonna be distributed to you from that altar. Now we see here in this section on this altar that there are these different tools to be made for it. They're going to be made out of bronze. So the altar is bronze. We see that too, that it will be overlaid in bronze in verse 2. And all the utensils are bronze. In fact, as we read in verse 19, all the utensils for use in the tabernacle for everything are to be made of bronze. Including the pegs. Like you pitch a tent, you have to drive tent pegs into the ground. They're going to make a grate for this altar, which to me, I mean, this makes it sound like this altar is not one solid flat top, but in the middle, there's a grate there that they can light fire for the burnt offerings. So this metal grate that's going to sit in the middle and it goes halfway down. So it's two and a quarter feet off the ground, I suppose. Um, It's sitting there and they can rest the animal on that, and they can put the wood underneath it and burn that. Poles for it as well to carry. It's also described in verse 8 as being hollow, which might have made it lighter for the sake of their having to carry it through the wilderness in the time to come. You can imagine how heavy a seven and a half foot square piece of furniture that's coated in bronze might get. So making it hollow makes it a little lighter, that's for sure. The court of the tabernacle is then described in the next paragraph there for us. And so we've you've already been laying out in your backyard, if you've been following along with that part of the devotion, um, the, the diagram of the, the tabernacle itself. Your backyard may not be big enough to do the courtyard. The court's going to measure 150 feet long on the south and the north, sides and it's going to be 75 feet wide so the west and the east sides now the east side is not going to look like the west side the west south and north are going to be solid uh, connected walls so you've got a a solid border but the east side is going to have an opening that's where people will be able to come in and go out the diagram you see in your lutheran study bible if you have a copy of that and that is let me look at that page number real quick that's going to be on page 139. That's actually going to show that that middle section, the screen that gets described in verse 16, is going to stand apart. It's going to stand a little bit of a distance from the, the other two 15-foot sections of the that side. Sorry, 15 cubits? Oh, where are we at here? Yeah, 15 cubits. So you've got... On that eastern border, two 15 cubit sections and one 20 cubit section. So adding together to be 50, just like the west side is. The 15 cubit sections are 22 and a half feet. This 20 cubit is 30 feet. Anyway, it's set apart from those two. The two 15s are connected to the south side and to the north side, and running towards each other. But instead of being one solid fence border, there's a gap there so that people can come in and they can come out. It's a gate is the description in verse 16. You got pillars and bases, things like that for all these different pieces so that they can be st- set up and stand up. They're going to be seven and a half feet high. So whereas the, the tabernacle itself It's going to stand at 10 cubits or, you know, 15 feet. The the courtyard fence is going to stand at half that height, five cubits or seven and a half feet. And then lastly, in this chapter, we read about the oil for the lamp. This oil should be olive oil, pure olive oil, and it's going to be used to burn in that lampstand that we discussed back in chapter 25. So the lampstand is what gives light inside of the tabernacle for the priests to do their duties. And one of their duties, and really what ends up being one of their primary duties in that tent, which is the Lord's house, is that they are to keep these candles burning. We're going to read more about it, how they're supposed to do it. That's going to come up in a later chapter. But we read from evening to morning on the verse 21 there. Statute forever. As long as this ironic priesthood exists, this observance is to happen throughout their generations. This is part of what we see with the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. Right before we actually get the angel Gabriel talking to Mary, we get him talking to Zechariah, who will be the, the father of John the Baptist. And Zechariah is serving in the temple at the time that the angel gre- greets him and visits him. Now, a conversation you can have here, how do you become a priest in the Old Testament? See if your kids know. And then you can ask them, is it any different today? So in the Old Testament, you became a priest by being one of Aaron's children. It was a family thing. It was passed down from generation to generation. As the Levitical tribe, Aaron's tribe grew, they served in the Lord's house. Now in today's world, in the church today, yes, it is different than that. Um, Our pastors are not passed down hereditarily. So if I had any sons, they would not simply become pastors because they were my kids. It's not how it works. Today it is something where the church essentially chooses its pastors. Um, Within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Circle, we tend to talk about almost an external calling for members of a church to to watch their young men who are growing up in their midst and to identify guys that they see who have the qualifications, who may indeed be good pastors, who are students of the word, respectable, show that kind of a diligence um, in their life, that faithfulness and to start encouraging those young men to consider becoming pastors. And if a man wants to go that route, it's a long process. They have to have a college degree first and then they can enter the seminary. And once in the seminary, uh, it's another four years of study, learning the languages, learning Greek, learning Hebrew. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly intense process and there's a reason for that to make sure that you have the, the strength to withstand the struggles and the strain of ministry and that the devil is going to put against you. It's no light task to be a pastor in the church. The devil knows that if he can bring a pastor down, he harms a lot more than just the pastor. He harms a lot of the people in the congregation that that pastor is serving when the pastor falls. Um, Many, many men that I have served with or went to school with have admitted to me that some of their most most difficult years in their life were those seminary years where they were training to be a pastor because, again, spiritual warfare here. If the devil gets you while you're at the seminary, you never get into the ministry. He can take you down before you get into the church. He has prevented the flock from having one more good shepherd who would serve them. We only have one good shepherd, that is Jesus himself. But Jesus calls men in the church today to be his under shepherds, to serve as his stewards in his place. So it's a faithful calling, but a difficult one, but it's a good conversation to have. Um, And if you think your child might be a a candidate, if your son has has interest in this position or that you think he might be a good pastor, talk to your pastor. Let him know and see if they might have a conversation together sometime. Go in peace.